Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just do two things today, that you would show us our need for Jesus and that you would give him to us. Amen. Over these last few months, but especially this past week, I've had a lot of really hard conversations with people. I've heard stories from inside and outside our church of deep relational distress, marital infidelity, divorce, loneliness, strained and embittered relationships between parents and children, people whose mental or physical well-being have totally tanked, deep wounds, irreparable hurt. This week, at least for me in my ministry, these conversations came like a flood. And it was very heavy, a very heavy and powerful experience to be listening to these broken and sacred stories while wrestling with my preaching text, Isaiah's vision in chapter 35. In that wrestling, a question kept arising. How does the gospel... The good news about forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ come to bear in a truly meaningful way for people who are experiencing this kind of distress. I know I, as a minister of the gospel, shouldn't say this, but as I was sitting down and listening to these stories, I couldn't imagine that the words, God forgives all your sins in Christ, were the right kinds of words to address the pain that I was hearing. The words, you're forgiven, struck me in those moments as the kinds of words that would ring hollow. I imagined the answer coming back to me, I believe I'm forgiven, but I'm still hurting. So where does the gospel come to bear on the deep pain that you're bringing into church this morning? I read in Isaiah something that moves toward an answer to this question. I believe Isaiah offers a word strong enough to push back against the pain. In our chapter, chapter 35, it's really the ending of a cycle and a series of cycles of woes, negative proclamations of the prophet against the people of God. In fact, if you look from chapter 28 to chapter 35, you see a cycle of six woes being pronounced, and they seem to each crescendo in their intensity. And in these cycles, the prophet says, woe to you, people of God, because you've done such and such, and you've rebelled and moved away from God. And as these cycles move and move and, and pronounce their woes, after every woe, there's a little glimmer of hope, a promise that comes again and again and again until at around chapters 33 and 34 the sixth woe happens and God pronounces something that's just devastating to the point where it sounds like God says I'm going to undo the entire earth as a result of the way that you all have messed it up and it's at that moment that chapter 35 comes when God says and yet there's a promise here and that promise is that the deserts will spring forth 
and new life on the other side of this death will occur. We heard it read this morning. It ends in a word of hope. From Parade Magazine comes the story of a self-made millionaire, Eugene Land, who greatly changed the lives of a sixth grade class in East Harlem. Mr. Land had been asked to speak to a class of 59 sixth graders. And what could he say to inspire these students, most of whom would drop out of school? He wondered how he could get these children, whose lives and backgrounds were very different from his, to listen to him. And so he scrapped his notes and he decided to speak from his heart. And in speaking from his heart, he found himself making an outlandish promise. He said, stay in school, he admonished, and I'll help pay the college tuition of every one of you. That was a life-altering moment for those students. For the first time, they had hope. To the end that nearly 90% of the class went on to graduate from high school. Contained in this story is an insight on the way the future hope works now. The hope of a future sealed by a present promise changed the student's experience of life. Notice I didn't say that it changed the student's life. It changed their experience of life. For those students, the promise of a future didn't actually do anything to mitigate or lessen the difficulty of their present circumstances. But the promise offered a hope that changed their entire experience of those present difficulties. This is the nature and the power of a promise. In our passage in Isaiah, We hear God making the kinds of promises that put free college tuition to shame. These are the promises of what the book of Revelation calls the new heavens and the new earth, where God resurrects the world and our life out of the ash heap. These kinds of promises, when heard and believed, change our experience of life. They offer a word strong enough to push back against the pain. But we also see in this passage the solution to my earlier conundrum of how the gospel of God's grace and forgiveness speaks into our present pain, our relational distress, our loneliness, our depression, and our darkness. Look with me at verse 4. Chapter 35, verse 4, Isaiah prophesies and speaks this over the people of God. In the midst of this vision, he says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold your God. He will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. This language is meant to give us two things. The first thing may be the more obvious. This word that would have said, to the people of God. All the wrongs done against you, all the injustice that you see in society, you have my promise, says the Lord, that one day they will all be righted. That seems like a pretty tall order for us. The math doesn't seem to compute in that way, but that is God's promise, and God is God. And God declares that with vengeance and with recompense I come, and I will make it all right. 
in such a way that we are all going to one day stand in awe of just how just, just how right, just how good his recompense really is. Where he will punish all the wrongdoing and he will elevate all the good in Christ. And we hear that, but maybe we also need to hear the other side of that equation, which is the fact that God chose to execute his vengeance and his recompense fully and finally on the cross of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Because what ultimately happens when we hear this word that God will right all wrongs is that you and I are pinned against the wall. Our sins, our wrongdoings, our injustice, it's all very culpable in this system of injustice. Which is why God executed his vengeance upon his own son instead of on us, that he might be a sacrifice for us. This is the way the cross worked in God's economy, is that this promise of future vengeance and retribution and recompense was meted on a substitute for you and for me. But secondly, we read in verse 8 something that I find powerful in linking the future hope with the word of forgiveness. It says, And a highway shall be there in the future, and it shall be called the way of holiness, and the unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way, and even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now, the natural tendency when we hear that, when we hear there's going to be a highway there, and the unclean will not journey on it, is to think that it's going to work like this. It's the people who've behaved well and done well and obeyed all of God's commandments that will end up on this highway. But there's an important word, an important word that's in this text that says, the unclean will not journey on it. And again, you and I typically think unclean are those folks who have really blown it. Unclean are those folks who who haven't lived up to uh, what God's called them to be. Those folks, those other folks out there. But this Hebrew word, the Hebrew word tameh, is a unique word that often accompanied the kinds of people that would approach a priest in the Old Testament and present a sacrifice. I am unclean, and I need to be cleaned. And so I present this sacrifice, a substitute for me, so that God, through the death of this substitute, might find me clean on the other side of this, because of this. And so we see that the kinds of people on this way of holiness aren't people who have their lives all together. Because actually, despite how good we look this morning, that's none of us. The kinds of people that are found on the way of holiness are the kinds of people who avail themselves of the means of grace. The kinds of people who don't rely on their own righteousness, but rely on the merits and grace of Jesus Christ found at the cross, clinging to the gospel for mercy. These are the kinds of people who will find themselves at peace, unthreatened on the way of holiness. And all of a sudden, we see the link, the connecting point, the lightning rod, It tethers the power of the gospel, forgiveness, to the word that's strong enough to push back against the pain. Isaiah has been prophesying a promised future for Israel and for you and for me. And this future is guaranteed because of grace 
through sacrifice. You see, God's promises are like a treasure contained in a large chest. And forgiveness of sins is the key that unlocks it. Now listen closely. Isaiah is telling us, God is telling us, that one of the great promises unlocked by God's forgiveness is that your present circumstances don't have the last word. Your present circumstances don't have the last word. God says to you, Oh, my child, because of Christ, the desert of your life will one day be filled with streams of living water. This is my promise. God says to you, Oh, my child, because of Christ, the wilderness of your loneliness will blossom into a fruitful grove of relational fulfillment. This is my promise. God says to you, oh my child, because of Christ, in the end, the last thing you see won't be the blackness of your life's darkness. You will see my glory and my splendor, which will fulfill you. That's my promise. God says to you, oh my child, because of Christ, your feeble body with its aches, pains, and disabilities, your feeble mind with its confused thoughts, and mental illness. They will be healed and made whole again. This is my promise. God says to you, oh my child, because of Christ, I will bind up your bruised and broken relationships and cause you to feel a depth of friendship and connection and fulfillment in your relationship with me, the likes of which you couldn't have imagined in your wildest thoughts. This is my promise. The link. God's present forgiveness of us unlocks the opposite of a Pandora's box. It unlocks Christ's box, out of which flies 10,000 irrevocable promises. And one of those promises, the promise from the mouth of Isaiah, is glory. Present grace unlocks future glory. Again, your present circumstances do not have the last word. It's why in the general thanksgiving of our morning prayer liturgy, we give thanks in this way. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. For the means of grace and for the hope of glory. Do you see the link that because of the means of grace now, you and I have an irrevocable hope of glory? There's the link. God's gracious word of forgiveness unlocks God's promises. And one of God's many promises is that we have before us an unshakable hope of glory. The last word is not the darkness of the present. The last word is the promised light of the glory to come. Amen.